Christ Church, would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 as we continue making our way through this magisterial epistle of the Apostle Paul. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, this morning we'll look at Romans 10 and verses 1 through 4. Please hear the word of the living God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would receive your word and believe your word and respond to your word by looking to Christ for grace and looking to your word for guidance in our lives as your redeemed people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, we learned in Romans chapter 9 that divine election is not a flawed concept to be challenged, but a sublime doctrine to be cherished. It is not a flawed concept to be challenged, but a sublime doctrine to be cherished. For election, we have learned, punctuates the grace and power of God in the salvation of unworthy sinners. Salvation is of the Lord and not by human works or foreseen faith. Divine election also fosters comfort. We learned this. It fosters comfort. For those who are saved, according to God's sovereign will and purpose, will never be cast off. Paul asks in Romans 8, 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, the answer, of course, is no one shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. There are times when we may feel when our emotions may bring us to a place of despair where we think that we will be abandoned or that we may have been abandoned by God or by Christ, but we have the promises of God's word to stand on, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love never changes for his own. We see this mirrored in the parent-child relationship. This love which is so strong that one would, one, a parent would give their life for their child if faced with that decision. Dear ones, our great comfort is not in our often weak grasp of God but his mighty and unchanging hold of us. 
Nothing shall snatch us out of his hand, Christ tells us. Richard Sibbs, a 17th century English Puritan, he explains it this way. I read this passage this week in one of my devotions, and it is so, so moving and encouraging. Listen to what Sibbs says, quote, election is firm on God's part, not on ours. We choose indeed as he chooses us, but the firmness is of his choosing. So he calls us, we answer, but the firmness is of his action. He justifies, we are made righteous, but the firmness is of his imputation. Will he forgive sins today and bring us into court and damn us tomorrow? No. The firmness is of his action. Whom he calls, he will justify and glorify. Therefore, he writes, never doubt of continuance, for it holds firm on God's part, not yours. God embraces us in the arms of his everlasting love, not that we embraced him first. Sibs then gives a wonderful illustration, an illustration that should be easy to consider as we have so many precious young children in this congregation. Sibs writes, when the child does not fall, it is from the mother's holding the child and not from the child's holding the mother. So it is God's holding of us, knowing of us, embracing of us, and justifying of us that makes the state firm and not ours, end quote. Isn't that good news this morning? It's God's love that is perfect and unchanging. And that love is ours in Christ, brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, in union with Christ, that union never changes. It's never a greater or a lesser union. It is always a perfect union for those who are united to him. And united to him, we've been given a gift. It's called faith. And we exercise that faith. We receive his righteousness with that faith. We, we hold fast to him by faith. But we know ultimately that it's because of our union with Christ that we will never be forsaken. And so while our faith may be stronger or weaker at times, Christ's love never is stronger or weaker at times. It's always perfect. And so we rejoice. We rejoice. And dear ones, being chosen in Christ does not undermine sanctification. It ultimately guarantees it. It guarantees it. These truths do not put in the heart of a true believer, one who wants to stamp on that grace and live in a way that is uh, in uh, contradiction to the word of God. No, those who have been brought into union with Christ, their affections have changed, uh, their wills have been oriented towards the Lord. There are new affections, a new heart, a renewed mind. And while it's never done with perfection, there is now an orientation towards Christ and no longer a life lived in bondage to sin. And so the doctrine of election must not be challenged. It should be cherished, for it reinforces to us that God's love is unchanging, it is perfect, and he will never let us go. And that brings great comfort to us 
in our lives as we go through challenging times. Well, we spent, of course, several weeks in Romans chapter 9 and looking at the doctrine of election, especially as it pertains uh, to the condition of Israel. The Apostle Paul explains that Israel's present spiritual condition is not the result or the consequence of God's unfaithfulness to his word, to his promises, but rather Israel's unbelief in those promises and the one to whom they point. Indeed, we learned last week that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They rejected Jesus. Rather than embracing him by faith, they pursued a righteousness based on works rather than by faith in Christ. And so Paul, he's continuing in this vein. There are uh, verses and chapter breaks uh, within our, our Bibles, but we know that it wasn't until, I think, the 16th century that we actually had these chapter breaks and, and, and verses so that we could study our Bibles. But, but when Paul wrote this letter, it was written as a, as, a, as a letter, and there were no chapters and verses. It just flowed. And, and we'll see that chapter 10, while a break from chapter 9, it really, Paul continues in this, in this way of thinking and, and in this argument that we're saved by, by grace through faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He is determined to make it abundantly clear that salvation is not something that we accomplish through our own spiritual strivings and through our own good works, but that which is accomplished in Christ and received by grace through faith. You say, Pastor, are we going to talk about this yet again? The answer is yes. And we're going to keep talking about it as long as the Apostle Paul keeps talking about it because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if anyone has been in ministry or have had, had any kind of, of ministry in people's lives and have asked questions, they'll know that one of the, the, the devil's chief stratagem is to mix people up as it concerns our salvation. Those who have been sitting in church pews for years in solid churches will still not get this point that salvation is all of grace. And it may be that intellectually uh, they understand that salvation is all of grace, but, but personally and sort of existentially, they struggle with the idea because all of life seems to be on a kind of works basis. You work hard at work, uh, you get fruit, you get blessings, you, you get positive responses, and, and uh, children, you obey your parents and it will be positive. If you don't, it won't be. And, and we have all these relationships that work like this on the earth. But here's the thing. We don't work for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation. It's not salvation by cooperation. It's salvation by grace. And beloved, you have been accepted by God through Jesus Christ, period, full stop. And there's nothing that you can do to add to what Christ has done to make you more loved and more accepted by God. Indeed, it is the devil's primary aim to avert our eyes away from Christ and to put them on ourselves, to look inward rather than outward for our justification. The biggest problem in the world today is not war or, or potential for even a great and destructive war. It's not the absence of a speaker of the house, of representatives, 
The greatest problem today is not the teetering economy or the a thousand other things that the news puts in the headlines. Now, the biggest problem in the world today is what has always been the biggest problem in the world. That is mankind's separation from God and his need for a Savior. This is the most urgent problem facing the world today. This is true for Jews, and it is true for Gentiles. It's true for everyone, as the apostle reiterates in chapter 10. Paul's words to the Christians in Rome are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and thus they apply not only to them in the first century, but to us in the 21st century. So let's see what God has for us to learn uh, from his word this morning. Uh, The first heading that I have set forth is uh, a heart of compassion and prayer. Uh, Paul's heart of compassion and prayer. Look at me again at verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, of course, we remember in chapter 9, uh, at the outset. This is what Paul expresses uh, as well. And, and uh, you'll look there at, in chapter 9, verse, um, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Once again, we are reminded here that Paul is grieved over the spiritual condition of his countrymen, the Jews. And let's take a moment and remember that Paul was the object of great abuse and persecution from his own people. He has reason uh, to, uh, to respond to, to them in a very negative way. But here he shows a heart of compassion, a heart of love uh, towards them. There were probably those who accused Paul of being hateful towards them based on his teaching in Romans 9 and and elsewhere as he spoke about their lostness and their unbelief. But it was quite the opposite. Paul didn't hate them. Paul loved them. He was in anguish over their lostness. He loved them. He wanted them to be saved. Paul preached the truth to them about their spiritual condition precisely because he loved them and wanted them to be saved. There is an offense of the gospel, and when we share the gospel with others, we need to know that at times there will be those who are offended. There is a a, a kind of built-in offense to the gospel. You mean my sins are so bad that the only remedy for them is for God to send His Son into the world to be crucified on a cross and to receive God's wrath in my stead and to die for me? Yes, your sins and my sins are that bad. That's the whole glory of the gospel. The gospel is an offense to humanity because it 
It, it tells us this, but it's also glorious news. When you understand it and you, by God's grace, believe it, that this is what God has done for us. Why did God become man in order to save us from what our sins deserve? You see, Paul wanted his fellow countrymen to be saved. He wanted them to know Jesus. He wanted them to know their promised Messiah. He wanted them to know the one whom he met on the road to Damascus. He wanted them to know the one who was crucified for him and rose from the dead and is coming again. Paul was in anguish over his lostness, and so it says his heart's desire and prayer to God for them was that they might be saved. Now, we should recognize here, shouldn't we, that Paul's belief in election does not squelch his love for his fellow Jews or make him lose hope for the Gentiles. His belief in election doesn't squelch his love for the Jews and his desire to see them saved or his love for the Gentiles and his desire to see them saved. It didn't make him callous or smug or arrogant or prayerless. On the contrary, we can see here that God's sovereign grace and election inflamed his desires, inflamed his prayers for the salvation of the world. With all his heart, Paul wanted Israel to be saved. Dear ones, it would be wrong for us to continue on here and not reflect for a moment on the state of our own desires and prayers for the lost. Yes, yes, it's true. Paul is an apostle. He's the great apostle Paul. He's written half the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was a great figure in church history. But he was, first of all, let us remember, a Christian disciple. And he was still a man who had remaining indwelling sin that he was fighting against. Read Romans 7 and other places where there was still this this struggle with indwelling sin. Paul, yes, he had a special calling. But he was first and foremost a Christian. And his example as a Christian to us here is... I think, a vital one. As those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, shouldn't we too, ought we not to have a desire for the salvation of our friends, of our neighbors, of our coworkers, of our teammates, of our classmates, of those we run into all the time in our community? Does it cross our minds that there are so many who are lost and perishing in their sin? We are so distracted. We are so distracted in the world, and we put so much attention and focus on so many things that will not last, that are perishing all around us. We're all guilty of this. We are distracted by a world that thinks that it can save itself. But it's hopeless apart from Christ. But we do have the answer. 
we do have the answer to the greatest problem in the world. The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. When we are privileged to point people to him. Oh, pastor, you know, I've watched these evangelists on YouTube, and they're just amazing. I, I just, I can't, I'm just not there. I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not gifted like that. Perhaps you've said that. I think we all have at one point. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't call you to be a gifted evangelist. He calls you to be his witnesses, to share his gospel as he gives opportunity. It may be a very simple thing, but God's truth is powerful. Even just to share John 3.16, to quote those words to someone, they, they may hear 10 million words that month, but those words that they hear are words of life, truth. And so we share God's word. We, we try to engage people in ways that are loving, friendly, kind, building bridges to be able to share the truth of the gospel with the lost, inviting people to church, inviting people to, to friendship Sundays, to, to various activities in the life of the church. This is the privilege we have, and we have to ask ourselves, do our desires reflect a longing for people to be saved? And do our prayers reflect this as well? Are we, are we praying for the lost? Paul desires and prays for the salvation of the Jews. For, he tells us in verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so he's now giving an explanation about why he's praying for them, why he has a desire for them to be saved, because they're not saved. Why? Because they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's the first, that's the second heading, rather, zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge knowledge. Paul testifies to them, he says. He proclaims to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to epignosis is the Greek term used here. This Greek word means true knowledge. It's just not just that the Israelites don't have knowledge. They have a lot of knowledge about the law of God and about life and, and, and all of these things, but but they don't have this true knowledge, the knowledge of the, the way things truly are and not what they falsely think them to be. This is, as one commentator put it, quote, knowledge from God's perspective. They have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Israel had a zeal for God through their observance of the law and their traditions. They were proud of their ethnic heritage and history, but their zeal for God and these other things were quite apart from the truth that tied it all together. And that truth, of course, is Christ. Look with me again at Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Again, Paul, he reflects on how much Israel had, how much they possessed by way of spiritual privileges. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They possessed all of these things, and they had a zeal for all of these things, but not 
according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge, because all of these things were pointing to the Messiah who came from the bosom of Israel, who came out of Israel and was according to their flesh. Look with me at Luke 24. Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. We know that Christ has died and these travelers are on their way to Emmaus and they are downcast because they thought that the Messiah had come and then the Messiah was killed and so they thought, well, it's, it's over. We're, we're in mourning now. But Christ said to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning, now listen, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later, he says something similar to his disciples in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, Christ is the one that was to be anticipated through all of these spiritual privileges that Israel had. And yet, they put their trust in themselves. Many in the world today have a zeal for God, but it is without knowledge, the knowledge of the truth about Christ. Many in other religions and various spiritualities have a so-called Zeal for God, small g, God. But it's not according to true knowledge, but rather according to ignorance. And so we want to shine the light into the darkness of this world. We don't simply want to be those who think about life in a isolationist way, a kind of protectionist way. We're, we're all guilty of this, I am quite sure. You know, how many of you have talked about moving to Idaho lately, <laughs> getting a tract of land and uh, starting a community without all the craziness. Well, maybe you haven't. Maybe it's in another place. But we have all had that sense of being retreatists because the world has become a very different place in the last 10 years, a very different place. And, and so there's that temptation to want to Retreat, but Christians don't retreat. There is no armor in the spiritual armor on our backs. Uh, it is all uh, to be, uh, we are guarded in our bodies, spiritually, as it were, with armor where we go forward, and we have the sword of the Spirit, and we have the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the helmet of salvation, and the, the, the gospel shoes. Uh, we go forward by faith, trusting in the Lord. But these other religions, they need light. They need truth. These, these 
friends, neighbors, foreigners from other lands that we may go to or send people to. They need the light of the gospel. And I think that there's a sense in which our hearts and minds need to be recaptured with the reality of the lostness of the world. Think for a moment of your own family being lost, your own children never having heard the gospel or having heard it clearly, perhaps. Put yourself in that position and that predicament. Oh, that someone would come and share the gospel with you. This is the privilege that we have. This is the opportunity that God has given to us. This is the command he has shared with us to go forth into all the world and to make disciples, to share with others the hope that is within us. This zeal of the Jews was for God, but without knowledge. And in fact, my third heading here is that as God's righteousness unknown, they, they, their, their zeal without knowledge was... Uh, described by Paul as being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That's what it says there in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What's Paul saying here? What Paul's saying here is that like many today, like many today, Israel was ignorant of God's Standard of God's standard. To earn one's salvation through the keeping of the law is impossible. Why? Well, because of sin. Because no one can meet the requirements of God's holy law. No one. Because his requirements are perfect and personal obedience. In this sense, the Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own. That is, a righteousness that falls short of God's standard. And by establishing their own righteousness, they were not submitting to God's standard of righteousness, which is what Paul is, is teaching here. And let me ask you this morning, does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Establishing our own righteousness. This is what people have been doing since the beginning. It's what the devil uh, uh, tempted Eve with, right? If you eat this, you will be like God, discerning good from evil. In other words, you can come up with your own morality, Eve. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. I get Things are on my terms now. Things are on my terms now. That's, that's, I like that. And then, of course, they ate and they were separated from God and cast out of, of the garden. It's what's been happening ever since. Coming up with our own standards of morality and rejecting or ignoring God's. So Paul was deeply familiar with putting his confidence in the flesh, putting his confidence in spiritual privileges and establishing his own righteousness. Paul, as he writes this, he knows what's going on in the mind of his fellow countrymen who are unbelievers, right? Because he was there. Paul was in their very place at one point, and he can remember. He can remember. And we see this expression in, again, Philippians 3, 4 through 9. 
Paul writes, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he writes. And then he starts listing all of his spiritual privileges. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, my spiritual pedigree is sound according to your standards, my fellow Jews. But then he writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see what's going on here. I remember the words of John Wesley who said that we cannot receive the righteousness of Christ until we have renounced our own. That's what Paul is doing here. He's renouncing his own righteousness because he knows it is on its own as filthy rags. It's righteousness that's polluted and poisoned with sin. And Paul is saying all of these things are meant to point us to the one who has the perfect righteousness, who has said, I want to give it to you. I want you, dear ones, to have my righteousness, Christ says. And that is the good news. That Christ came to the world to do that which Adam failed to do in the garden and that which we failed to do every single moment of our lives, and that is to live in perfect personal obedience. And that is the standard. How could it not be? God is holy. If, it wasn't, if holiness wasn't the standard for us, then God would have low standards. And that's impossible because he's perfectly just and holy. And why would God send his son to come down to the world to die on a wretched, cursed cross, one of the worst kinds of executions, if we could have been saved by some other way, even our own good works. Oh, no. No, the very act of what Christ has done for us clearly demonstrates the wretchedness of our sin, the wretchedness of our spiritual state, and our profound need of his grace. Yes, we cannot receive Christ's righteousness until we renounced our own as a way to salvation. And this leads us, of course, to the final heading, Jesus Christ, the end of the law for righteousness. The end of the law for righteousness. For Christ, Paul writes, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. The very purpose of the law is to show to show us our sin, 
and our need for Christ. That's the purpose of the law, is to show us our need for Christ because it shows us like a mirror our sin. It's what the Mosaic law and all its facets was designed to do, to show Israel and the world that we are sinners and we need a mediator. We need a savior. We need a sacrifice. We cannot save ourselves. Our own righteousness will not do. We need an alien righteousness, an an outside righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And Paul speaks of this in the third chapter, doesn't he? When he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It is through the law that the knowledge of sin comes. But then Paul writes this wonderful news that so changed the life of Martin Luther and sparked uh, the Protestant Reformation and God's providence. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there's this this righteousness, this holiness that could seem threatening to us because we're being judged by it. And the law is only our judge. It cannot save us. And then we're given this good news that there's a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. Though the law speaks to it, the law of Moses, but it's been revealed apart from the law. And what is that righteousness? Look at verse 22, Romans 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness, perfect. Our righteousness, filthy rags, stained polluted, poisoned. Even our best good work is a bad good work apart from Christ because it's apart from faith. It's apart from union with Christ. But now, a righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. In fact, it's a gift. And Christ came to this earth to fulfill all righteousness in his humanity on your behalf and my behalf. And then as a perfect law keeper, he laid his life down on the cursed cross at Calvary and was crucified and bore God's wrath and judgment to the fullest. He drank down his wrath to the very dregs on the cross and then he died and he paid the wages of your sin and my sin. And he went into the grave. And because he was innocent, 
The grave could not hold him, and he rose from the dead as conqueror of sin, hell, Satan, and death. And so Christ is our life. He is, 1 Corinthians 1.30, our righteousness. Not only are we forgiven of our sins when we are in Christ, and the blood of Christ washes away our sins, but we are then covered, robed, wrapped with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, is what makes us acceptable to God. We stand before God in Christ justified. Just as if we ourselves had obeyed the law perfectly because he's done it in our place, in our stead. This is what the Lord has done. This is the good news for you. This is the good news for you. Listen to what John Owen says in his wonderful work called Communion with God. Quote, we are not freed from obedience as a way of walking with God. In other words, the law doesn't become irrelevant after we become Christians. We still obey the law, but we do so pleasing God, not as a way to be right with God, right? So that's what Owen is saying here. We are not freed from obedience as a way of walking with God, but we are freed from obedience as a means of making ourselves good enough to come to God. The righteousness we receive, he writes, must be that righteousness if we had obeyed the whole law. This is the obedience of Christ to the law. So he has made to us righteousness. He's done it in our place. So we stand before the Lord justified. This is good news for everyone. For everyone, as it says here, in Romans 10 and verse 4, who believes, for everyone who believes, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, turns from their sin and trusts Christ. And so as we close, let me ask you very simply, have you established your own righteousness have you established your own terms with God? Because if you have, you are in the same terrible place that Paul's fellow countrymen were in in the first century. Having established their own righteousness, not recognizing that the only righteousness acceptable to God is a perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness can only be found and received in Jesus Christ. And so if that has been you or is you, let me encourage you, right now on the authority of the Holy Scriptures to repent of establishing your own righteousness and receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Call upon His name and be saved. Secondly, may this good news compel us to godliness. May it compel us to Christ-centered obedience. May it compel us to share the gospel with others because this kind of grace heaped upon us is intended to motivate and encourage and inspire us unto a life pleasing to God, being serious about his word and his commands to honor and to glorify him. The response to this is not, well, 
whatever. I'm just going to live my life just like my unbelieving neighbors. No, the response is, I want to live a thankful, godly, growing, obedient life for the Lord, knowing I will not do so perfectly and trusting always in the work of Christ. My heart's desire is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ and to reach out to others who need him even as I do. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these verses so packed with wonderful gospel truth. And we pray that this would not only motivate us to sing, but also to respond with gratitude, humility, love, and obedience. That we would respond with love to you and love to our neighbor. And that we would seek to honor you in all of our ways. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you that we are saved with a righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ. And we pray this in